welcome to the Disability Connection. I'm your host, Walter Nunes. The Disability Connection is produced by the Disability Law Center, which is the protection and advocacy system for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And we provide support and advocacy for folks with disabilities in a variety of areas. We're located at 11 Beacon Street in Boston. Direct number is 617-723-8455. And on the web, it's www.dlc-org, uh, I apologize. Um, today, I have a, a guest, uh, Caitlin Parton, no relation to Dolly, uh, who's going to talk about issues involving folks who are deaf and hard of hearing. I think it's going to be a great show. Caitlin, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. It's going to be uh, a very informative issue. I know I personally have so much to learn in this area, so I'd like to just get started. Um, one of the things that we're going to get to are the, the issues of access to services in the community for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. But you have a personal story on this matter. I do. I myself am deaf and I use spoken language to communicate, but uh, I can also use sign language to communicate with clients based on their preference. Uh -huh. And so did that have any impact and when you were growing up and something that might have led you to the law or these sorts of issues? Yes, so just a little bit of my backstory. I was born hearing and I lost my hearing when I was 18 months old to H-flu uh, meningitis. It was misdiagnosed as the flu and I lost all my hearing. I almost died. Uh, it was very traumatic for my parents, and they were both artists. They didn't know anything about uh, raising a kid who was deaf. And at the time, the cochlear implant was brand new. Uh, it was in FDA investigative status, and it's really a high-tech hearing aid, um, but it really uh, goes much beyond what uh, conventional behind-the-ear hearing aids can do. So I had surgery when I was 22 months old. I had a string of electrodes put into my cochlear and there's a system of two magnets and also an external piece. Uh, and since that time, uh, I've been using the implant for 30 years now. And wow. it's been a really powerful, helpful tool for me. And um, I really love using it. Um, as you pointed out, it's not a hearing aid as most folks understand it. This is something that is connected to your, your scalp, to your behind your ear, or can it be removed? Uh, there's an external piece I'll take it off, actually. This is what it looks wow. like now. When I was a kid, it used to be a bit box, and uh, had a long wire, and um, that little round thing is a magnet. And there's another magnet just underneath my skin, uh -huh. on top of my scalp. And uh, so the sounds go into a microphone, uh, go through one magnet to the other, down a strain of electrodes in my cochlear, which stimulates the auditory nerve, uh, and my brain interprets that as sound. And I hear it, but it took a lot of uh, auditory training, uh, a lot of speech therapy, a lot of hard work, and it's not a cure at all. I'm still deaf. Uh, when I wear it, I have a moderate hearing loss. So the range of hearing loss goes from mild, moderate, severe, to profound. So it's a great tool. I get a big jump from hearing absolutely nothing as a profoundly deaf person to a moderate hearing loss, but I still need accommodations in everyday life. 
Well, I can't thank you enough for your candor. And I, I was, you completely blew my mind when you took it out. I thought that was great, because that gives people a real sense of what it's doing. And this may be an awkward thing to say, but I mean it in the most positive light. But, you know, I suspect that a lot of people who come in contact would never realize that, you, that you're deaf. Yeah, I maybe have an accent that's slightly different. Um, I have friends who get asked, what country are you from? Right. I would have uh, guessed European. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm from New York. I optimistically think maybe I have a little bit of a New York accent, but uh, there's something there and you can't quite tell. Uh, but for the most part, I'm able to pass. And uh, unless I very proactively start asking people to repeat themselves or I look confused or I answer a question with the wrong kind of response, uh, then it's not completely obvious that I have a hearing loss. Well, we'll give you a pass, but actually the whole point of this show is that people really shouldn't be given a pass. The people with any kind of a disability should be included in society. And the focus of this show, or the theme of this show, is what things are available, uh, both through technology and other supports and services that can assist people in being uh, fully engaged in society, not just having a conversation at a table like we're doing, but one of the issues I'd like to talk about is going to the doctor. So why don't we kind of start with the challenges for a person who's deaf or hard of hearing in going to see a doctor? Something so, we'd all take for granted. Most of us would anyway. Um, well, just to explain a little bit, uh, the hearing loss community is very broad and very diverse. So. There are people who are like me and identify as little d deaf, uh, so spelled with a little d e a f. Then there's uh, people who identify as capital D deaf. That means that they identify as being part of the deaf community. They use American Sign Language as their primary form of communication. And mm. then there's people with uh, hearing loss uh, who identify as hard of hearing, hearing impaired, depends what they're comfortable with. And depending on the spectrum of your hearing loss, you know, concretely on an audiogram, but also the kind of technology you use to access daily life, you need different kinds of accommodation. So it really is a very individual uh, determination and uh, the request that someone who uses sign language to communicate might make to their doctor in order to be able to understand what the doctor is telling them in their appointment will be different than what someone who maybe wears hearing aids and can talk and use spoken English will request. So it's very helpful. So uh, people who use ASL generally consider themselves large D or capital D. But to make it, uh, for me to have a better understanding, hopefully for the folks viewing in the audience to have a better understanding, you know, can you think of a couple of examples of a person uh, going to the emergency room, for example, they pay in their back or they've injured themselves or broken their leg. Uh, uh, what kind of challenges they ha have and what would be perhaps the different accommodations based upon uh, their level of hearing loss or how they identify themselves, if I can put it that way? Sure. So primarily the main uh, consideration is how do they communicate? So. If someone uses uh, ASL, American Sign Language, to communicate, uh, you should be aware that there's no written form of American Sign Language, and it's not a visual translation of English. So many people whose primary form of communication or first language is ASL 
uh, reading and writing English is a second language to them. So uh, they really rely on having a qualified ASL interpreter there to make communication accessible and effective between a doctor, a nurse, uh, whoever they're seeing for medical care, you know, primary doctor in the ER for surgery, uh, giving childbirth, uh, you really need to have a qualified interpreter. So uh, there's been a shift over to using video remote interpreters um, and that may seem like a great solution on paper. It's using technology. You don't need to have a real live interpreter in the room, but in order to truly make it effective, you need to have an excellent internet connection. The staff needs to be trained on how to use the equipment and the system. Very often the interpreter who is on the video is in another state, so they don't understand the local dialect. Yeah, I always really enjoy it when I go to see my doctor and he's in another state. I mean, they, they can't listen to your breathing, they can't take your pulse or any of this stuff, right? No. But, um, I don't want to be overly lawyerly, but we are lawyers. So, um, you know, people have a right to uh, effective communication, yes? So where does that right come from for people who are deaf or hard of hearing and regardless of what is effective communication for them, um, let's say they go to the doctor and they say, or they communicate, I need ASL or I need this, that, the other thing. I know from being in the office as long as I have, some doctors, they don't think that's their responsibility. So could you talk a little bit about what is the responsibility of healthcare providers in meeting the needs of this community? So generally, uh, the primary law that people with disabilities rely on to uh, advocate and to get their rights uh, to access a broad range of services is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in a healthcare context, in addition to the ADA, we also have the Affordable Care Act, which has a specific provision, Section 1557, that's really focused on making sure people with disabilities have access to health care. So in a healthcare context, both the ADA and the Affordable Care Act really uh, provide uh, rights and legal protection to people with disabilities to get effective communication, to get accommodations and uh, you know, if you use a wheelchair to have, you know, uh, a table that's accessible to you to make sure the equipment is accessible to you. And so part of that big package of making sure you can go to your doctor just like your neighbor can if you have a cold or your child falls mm -hmm. out of the tree, climbing the tree, and you need to go to the ER, to be able to have that same experience. So insofar as the same experience, practically speaking, say there's somebody watching the show today and they have a medical issue, and they are either deaf or maybe they're uh, experiencing later life deafness, which I know I'm experiencing that. Um, should they take steps? Should they call ahead, communicate ahead to the physician? If, I mean, obviously, if it's an emergency, they cannot. But for routine appointments, what should the individual be doing? So generally, the best practice is to call ahead. Uh, you can use your video phone or however you use the telephone. You can send an email, a fax, however you get in touch with your doctor's office to make an appointment. As part of that process of saying, I'd like to see my doctor next mm -hmm, Friday, mm -hmm. also say, I need the following reasonable accommodation. And that could be sign language interpreter. It could be, 
I need to be in a small private room so that I can be sure I can hear the doctor in a good environment for noise. Um, it could be I need notes. Uh, I need things sent to me after to make sure that I understood what the doctor said in the appointment. There's a whole range of different accommodations. It's okay. very individualized. And I think that's fantastic. But let's say you call up your local friendly neighborhood healthcare provider. We don't do that. You could have your you could have your friend come in and they can translate for you or Will can pass notes back and forth. Is that an acceptable remedy? Absolutely not. Uh, it's illegal to rely on a friend, a family member, or your child to act as an interpreter for you. And unfortunately, we get calls to Disability Law Center very frequently of doctors or hospitals either not providing an interpreter on request or they're relying on the deaf person bringing the accommodation with them to the doctor's office because they say that they don't have the responsibility or they can't afford it. Well, that's not what the law says. Speaking of calling ahead, this is a live program, and if you'd like to call in and ask Caitlin a question, Attorney Parton a question, the number is 617-708-3290. I'm sure if this is a later broadcast, there'll be something scrolling beneath the screen right now saying this is not a live show, but if you wanted to call now, you could. Um, I, I can't help but ask this question because I'm pretty much into individual choice. What if the deaf person relies on their family member? Is it acceptable? in that instance to use a family member if it is their preference? If the individual with a disability makes that decision themselves, they have to make it explicitly clear, but of course it's their preference. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, that's fantastic. And, oh, when, and just to add to that, please. if someone decides at the beginning of the appointment, I want my family member to be acting as my interpreter, but then they change their mind later. You know, they get checked into the hospital, the medical problem is actually more serious than they thought, they're gonna be in the hospital for a few days. At that point, if they decide, you know what, I want them to bring in a qualified interpreter, that's absolutely their right. I think that's fantastic. Now, we have a couple of other large areas that we're gonna discuss, but you know, uh, my practice of law and the way I approach law is I'm, I'm motivated by stories. And a, a story that I heard, uh, whether it was an example or a true case, was that a, a woman was delivering birth and she had to use a video phone or some sort of device like that to communicate with the doctor. Do things like that go on today? Every day. Uh, it's a big problem and it's really serious. And I mentioned earlier that there's been this move to use video remote interpreting. And for, you know, a primary care visit or a really short check-in kind of visit, or when you get to a hospital and you're filling out paperwork, there are certain situations where using a video remote interpreter is appropriate and can work very well. But the minute you start getting into specialized treatment, someone's in severe pain, they're getting a CAT scan, they're immobile, they can't move their head, they're getting surgery, they're giving childbirth. It's so inappropriate to be relying on this tiny little screen to try to be, understand what people are saying. And um, it's a big problem. It's happening across the country. So I would like to point out to anybody uh, viewing, if you've got a family member who's experienced things like this or your concern, maybe you're with child and this is something that's coming down the road for you, um, 
I want you to let you know that calling the Disability Law Center may be very appropriate, uh, making sure that if there's advocacy necessary to clear the way, to make sure that the doctor or the facility, and it's not just doctors, it's hospitals too, right? And clinics, it's not just individual country doctors, so to speak, it's hospitals who don't always recognize this. Please contact the Disability Law Center and we'll do our best to help you. Um, before we move on to general public accommodation, and this will apply in all instances, what's a qualified interpreter? What does that mean? So a qualified interpreter is someone who's actually been trained and certified to uh, be an ASL interpreter, just like a foreign language interpreter uh, for another language like Spanish in the court system okay. or in hospital. You really need to make sure that they're trained uh, that they're following ethical rules, uh, that there's some oversight. It's not just someone who happened to take a class in high school in American Sign Language and they have a hobby. Uh, you really need a certified, qualified interpreter. Are there subcategories? I know, for example, there's, there's a, a type of interpreter who's considered a legal interpreter. Are there medical interpreters, people who understand medical jargon and things of that nature, or is that not the case? Well, uh, you hope that in a medical situation that the hospital or the doctor can request an interpreter who has training in specific medical terms. It's hard to get that, just like yeah. it's hard to get a legal interpreter. We, in Massachusetts, unfortunately, have a bit of a shortage in interpreters across the board, ASL interpreters. So I know that the Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing has been really working on expanding the pool of ASL interpreters who also have medical terminology and words in their arsenal. Terrific. I want to let folks know and you to know we're about five minutes out. The show goes so quickly because it's so good. Actually, it's so interesting. Um, so I want to touch on two areas. One is general public accommodation. What's general public accommodation? I mean, I know, but what does it mean for the folks out there? So it's uh, the shop down the street, it's the movie theater, it's uh, the live theater performance, it's uh, stores, it's really any place that someone in the public could go into and the door is open and they can walk in. And expect what when they walk in? Services. There you go. So let's say I'm a person, I'm deaf or hard of hearing and I don't use a cochlear implant and I need to conduct business, I don't know, real estate agent, a lawyer. Um, what should happen in those instances? What is the law required? I hate to bring it back to the law, but we are lawyers, but what should the person expect and what should the responsibility of the person who is engaging in business be providing to this community? So the Americans with Disabilities Act says that places of public accommodation should provide reasonable accommodations to people with disabilities, to their services and their goods. Make sure that they have the same access that someone without a disability has to what they're offering to the public. And so depending on what the person with a disability needs, they need to make reasonable efforts to try to shift their goods, their services, the way that they are interacting with the customer or the person who's seeking medical care uh, to make sure they're on the same playing field. So if you're an individual, let's say you had a banking problem, you go or getting notices of overdrafts of things of this nature. Is the bank required to have an ASL person, ASL competent person or other technology available at all times? Or is this the reasonable aspect where again appointments are made or there's some form of communication where the person is letting the bank know that they're coming in to talk about their account? 
So like the second half of what you said, it's if the person has made the request, then the bank has to do what they can to try to make right. it work. Uh, if they aren't able to find an ASL interpreter, they can have a conversation with the person with a disability to see if there's any other solution that might work. Could we, for this one instance, write notes back and forth and then make another appointment where we bring in an ASL interpreter? There's some flexibility there, but it has to be an ongoing conversation. So when the person goes to the bank and the bank says, Nada, we don't do this, call the Disability Law Center? Absolutely. Terrific. Again, we're moving quickly, and I don't want to rush, but I also wanted to touch on things in the home. Uh, we're, in the future, we're going to have a program. We're going to bring in an expert in this area who's going to demonstrate all kinds of uh, uh, equipment and devices that can assist. But you know, things you may not think of, but if I'm in my apartment and there's fire, I hear the fire alarm. So what are the things that, are, that can be beneficial for helping people in the phone? Uh, in the home, and we're about three minutes out. So there's flashing fire alarms, there's flashing doorbells, there's a shaking uh, alarm clock that vibrate your bed or your pillow. So if you can't hear your alarm clock, there's other ways to wake up and get to work on time. Uh, there's a whole range of different things. There's uh, accessible telephones, video phones if you use ASL, uh, caption phones if you like to read what the conversation is. And uh, the, Math the Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing can help you figure out which kinds of accommodations you need at home. Uh, the most ghastly that you described to me early was the shaking alarm clock. I, 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 that's, that's something which I'm not looking forward to as I age. Uh, I think we're coming down the home stretch here. Is there something you'd like to convey? The takeaway I think you were talking about earlier to the audience uh, watching us Day. Um, I think overall I'd like to say that there's a lot of tools available to make everyday life easier, more accessible, and anytime you face discrimination or someone turning you away just because of your disability or the fact that you might need an accommodation, find a lawyer, call Disability Law Center, and we'll see what we can do to help. And that's 617-723-8455. Caitlin, you have been terrific. This has been a great program, which is often the case, not because of me, but because we've had some fantastic guests. Um, I'd like to say that this show, after it's captioned for folks uh, who are deaf or hard of hearing, will be available on YouTube, Vimeo, the Disability Law Center's Facebook page, and also a podcast, et cetera. And uh, I thank you so much for being here. To all the folks watching, please stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.